less than 3% of financial planners have written even a single financial plan in their career. Even CFPs, yeah, I think, I'll bet you that less than 5% of certified financial planners have written more than, like, you have to write one financial plan to get your CFP to sample one. The 95% of CFPs have probably not written another one of that quality. Yeah, a comprehensive one. Well, what I find is a lot of the financial planning software is built for what I call a fake plan. You put in the client's name and address, you put in their income, and it's a bunch of assumptions. It prints off a bunch of glossies. There's your financial plan. Now let's talk about investments. And it's it's 10 minutes. I've had people say, I got a financial plan. I went to the bank. I said, how long did it take? 10 minutes. What does the plan say? What are you supposed to do? When are you retiring? I don't know. What's the lifestyle when you're retiring? I don't know. What do you have to do to get there? I don't know. Where is your plan? I don't know. Okay, you don't you don't have a plan. <laughs> if you have a financial plan, you should know I'm retiring when I'm 62 on 97,000 a year, and that includes 15,000 a year for travel, and to get there I have to put 15,000 a year in my RSP. Like you decide on the lifestyle you want to have when you retire, then you work out exactly how much you need before and after tax. You work back so to get there, how much do I have to put away and what kind of return do I have to make on it? You make a plan and then you do it. So you should know exactly how much you have to put away every year and how you have to invest it. And if you don't know that, you don't have a plan. This is the Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is The Personal Finance Show. Ed Rempel wants you to know that the conventional personal finance wisdom most people follow might not be the best for your financial situation. Unconventional wisdom, as he calls it, might be your path to financial success. Ed has been a financial planner for over 25 years and a tax accountant for over 35 years. He's a certified financial planner, chartered professional accountant, and certified hedge fund specialist. Ed has spent the majority of his life actually creating comprehensive financial plans for Canadians and continuously building his knowledge base to help his clients reach financial freedom in the most optimal and efficient way. Ed has so much unconventional wisdom to share that one podcast episode wasn't enough. We didn't even get to talk about all the really interesting investing and tax strategies that he's become an expert in over the years. So for the first time, stay tuned for part two of this interview that we're going to record in the coming months. Ed joined me in the studio in Hamilton to share part one of his personal finance story. My, my father was a missionary and a minister, so I mean, we were all he's provided for, but there was never a lot of money around or we never... How do you get money as a minister well, they or get a missionary? The, there's a conference that gives you, a, gives you a, bit of, a bit of income. Mostly they give you, um, as a missionary, you get a free place to stay and they pay your expenses. You don't really get... So you, there's nothing extra then? Right. And as a minister, you get a salary, but it's, it's paid by a church, so it's... Yeah, they don't have a lot of money. <laughs> it's, it's low, yeah. Okay, so, so, so you so didn't you have the, uh, like any real access or anything like that. Right. So, so my, my first noticeable memory was in my teens getting summer jobs. And uh, what I found is actually by doing jobs that other people don't want to do, but that what you can work hard at, yeah. you, can, you can do well. So I had a job 
hoeing beets on a sugar beet farm. Nobody wants to do this. Why don't they want to? Uh, well, it's hard work. It's hard work, yes. And it was, it was, it was funny because on the one side, there was a pig farm. The other side was a chicken farm. Oh, no. And I can tell you, chickens are worse. Yeah, that, and the smell, right? They're way worse, yes. But anyway, so I was being paid by the roll. I, was, I don't know. I can't remember what it was. Like a couple bucks per roll. And a roll was three quarters of a mile long. Okay. So I actually set my own targets. So I, I worked a 10-hour day. I, I would do 25 minutes down, 25 minutes back, and then take a five-minute break. Okay. And so I actually, I actually ended up doing an, a mile and a half of hoeing every half hour. Wow. And so by forcing myself to do that all the way through. So this was, I remember, I'm talking way back, like a few decades ago, right? In a summer job, I made, I made uh, 2000 bucks. Yeah. Which was uh, my university tuition. Yeah, I was just going to say, sounds like the cost of tuition. So you did you work summer job, like uh, this is between university or this is before university even? This was before university, yeah, so while you're, I was in high school. You got your tuition paid. Uh, did you do this every, uh, every year in high school? Um, I did that two years. Yeah. And I spent two years... Working for a, a guy across the street from me that owned a, a rock quarry. Okay. So we would drive drive out and get these ro- uh, rocks, like these huge thick rocks, and then I would have to take a sledgehammer and a chisel and and like chisel them, and like they broke off into th- thin pieces that were that were used on a like uh, stone facing for a house. So anyway, by doing these hard manual jobs and and yeah. driving myself, I find I can actually actually make good money even as a high school student. For sure. And and so where did this discipline come from? Is this from your from your parents? Like, where did you get this drive to do that? I don't know. Where that, I think I've just always been that way. Like, yeah. I, was, I was a I was a hardworking student as well. I always tried to get top marks, and okay. that's just kind of how I've always. You're a been. good kid. You're willing to do Com- things nobody wants to do. I was always competitive. Would play board games, and I was always the one that tried to win and tried to figure out what's the strategy to win the game. Just to skip ahead for a sec, and we'll try not to have any spoilers, but. Did this concept of being able to do things that other people don't want to do, has this helped you throughout your life? Well, I guess where I would say it is that the the biggest opportunities in life are usually not where everybody else is looking. Yeah. And even in my career, it's not I've done it differently from what most financial planners, most people do. Okay, so that philosophy that you had or, or, or uh, mindset, that did kind of color the rest of this trajectory, which is a word I'm using way too often these days. And but that's what it's good is, word. right? It's a good word. It, it, it's the best word to explain like how you get from point A to point B. And so point A here is you're a kid figuring out how to make money, more money than most people are making, and only in the summer too, so you can then focus on your studies, as you said, to get good marks, so you could get into university. Was that the yes. plan? Yes. And you already have money saved up because you knew yes. your parents weren't going to be able to pay, right? Or or what? Would you get uh, assistance? Actually, no. They did cover it for me, so they I actually did. had extra spending money. How know. were they? How were they able to well, afford that? It was just priority for them. Really? <laughs> yes, that's Even really on, awesome. On what they made it was just priority. Okay, well, that's fantastic. And I, I guess you know, like you said, it wasn't like you know, hundred thousand dollars or anything like that. It was, it was two a year, then. and and then you paid for your living expenses, or were they able to? No, I was living too? in residence too. Nice. So they paid for residence and tuition on such a low salary. You know, I I always uh, put out the the note to parents like, you know, you could probably make it happen for your kids, you know, give them a little bit of a leg up if you start early. Right. You know, with RESPs now. And, uh, you know, what what would you say about RESPs if uh, I guess your parents might not have had those? They just saved it. Don't think. Yeah, I don't 
don't think they existed back then. <laughs> but today, what would you but say it's a good idea? Oh, it's today it's an awesome idea. You want to help your kids get through even more now. It, there's not a lot of career, a lot of really good careers where you don't need education or where you won't sure. benefit. Even you know, I think going to university is a benefit just on its own, even if you're not working in that career. Absolutely. So, uh, so helping your kids through university, I think, is a huge thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, parents. RESPs, do it if you can. You get some free money from the government, which is also nice. It's not tons, but you get some. And it's better than not getting anything free if you just put it in a bank account. And also, not investing is not a great idea either. Uh, so exactly. <laughs> I always like free money. Free money so is you, great, uh, right? You invest it, you get 20% from the government. Yeah. You save it for your kids, even if they don't go to university. But not 20% of everything, just maxed up to, what is it, 25 2500 bucks a year. You can get up to 7200 grand total. Yeah, yeah, 7200. Yeah, you get $500. $500. Year. So it's 14 and a half years. 14 and a half years. So so you could put more than you know, like it you'll be able to get to the maximum grant amount before you get probably to your maximum investment amount, right? Do people usually because that's a, a 14 yes. years if you start when the you kid could, is... You could put all the way from birth up to up to 17. Yeah. But you only need 14 and a half years to get all to the get grant. To get all the grant. Okay. So it's like $500 a year if you put that 2500 in, which is the you know the amount that qualifies for the matching. If you put more than 2500 in a year, you don't get that 20%. Right. It's 20%, right? Yep. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the caveat there is like everybody thinks like you get free money forever or you get, you know, <laughs> you don't get $500 a year forever. It's only it's got a maximum, so you know just in case. But it's still it's free money, seventy two hundred dollars. Okay, so you got school paid for, which is great. So you you got money in the bank then while you're going to school. Well, it means I came out of school with no debt. Yeah, and the and the money that you made in the summers, where where did well, that, that was, go? That was my spending money. So yeah, good. So that's how you used to do the things you wanted to do as a teenager. I, I wasn't a, a good saver yet at, yet at that point. Yeah, so you didn't learn about saving, which is quite common. You know, people. Uh, they don't really think about saving until after university, maybe in their 20s, but often not till their 30s. Yeah. I was about 30 before I started saving. Okay, yeah. And so what did you go to school for? I went, in, I went in as an accountant. Yeah. So I got my accounting degree first. And where, where from? And, uh, well, you actually, you, t- um, you take it all at uh, night school. At that time, it was, it was five years of night school, so working full-time plus taking classes at night. Oh, you get a bachelor's degree first? Uh, you do. You required it now, but you didn't at that time. Okay, so you were, you were working, mm-hmm. and so, wait, when did you start going to school then? Okay, I was uh, 19. I took one year of general art at the university. Yeah. And then, um, then I went into accounting, so it was five years where I worked full-time plus had classes at, at night and, and studied. So Was it an accounting uh, job in the day, too? Yeah, I had a couple of accounting jobs. Yeah, yes. so you just started, like, how do you get a job in accounting out of high school? You just, like, I want to do this as a bookkeeping to start? or Well, you, you, you start with, so my first job was actually interesting. It was with, with the Bank of Canada, you know, the, the ones that print okay. the notes. So it was an office job. Okay. But I got to see, you know, a bit of the besi- behind the scenes, what happens. Yeah. So they're the, the bank's bank. You know, and the ones that print out the money, so I got to see how they issue new money. and Yeah, so I've talked about this in previous episodes, but like the Bank of Canada is not a typical bank that we, we think of no, when we think banks of banks. the banks can put their money there, yes. They put their money, like why does a bank need to put money in a bank? Well, they have excess deposits that they, they can put there and they, and they can withdraw because they have different, different, different amounts of money that they need to manage their operations. Yeah. Plus, there's also the bills. So the new bills get issued by the Bank of Canada. That's right. And then when a bill gets old, the banks send it back to the Bank of Canada and so 
so we'd count it. So sometimes my room, you know, my job for a day is me and one other guy in a room, of course, all glass, so everybody can see, you know, right? Yeah. And so our job is to, is to count, you know, 500 million in small bills. You're counting the, the money. I was thinking That's you got an job. office job, like, you know, uh, pushing <laughs> papers, but you're actually handling yes. the then, money that they make? And then, yes, we would, old bills, we would... Uh, Drill holes in them and then throw them in the in the furnace. That, al- <laughs> that always kind of pained me. Just, really, we're throwing in the furnace. We're wasting this. I could use that money. Okay, this is great because I've never had anybody who dealt with like actual creation and destruction of money before. So you actually have to. The bills come by. They're recalled or whatever. They're too old. The old well, ones. Like yes. how old does a bill have well, to when, be? Once they get really, I don't know. The banks. Or they're the, worn out. The, they get worn. Yes. Oh, I see. And the yeah. banks collect them and then they send them back. They send them back to us, and then you got to drill holes in them so that they're worthless. Yeah, and then you actually go and throw them in the fire. <laughs> it's like wow. Oh. So the, do retailers know this? Like, if I come up with an old bill that has a old drilled in it, they won't accept it. I don't know that retailers know that, but bank- bankers would know it. Yeah, yes. bankers would know. So if you went to deposit, it would look weird. I mean, if there was a hole in a bill, I don't know. I don't know if anybody would take it. Like, if there's a rip, they can tape it, right? But and that happens, with, especially yeah. with our new money, right? It, if, if it rips can, once, it'll rip the whole thing through if yeah, it gets yes. a tear. Yeah, I never thought about it. If there was a hole in a bill that somebody gave me... Three holes. Three holes. Three okay, holes. well, that's pretty clear. That's yeah. like... So three, three even holes spread across the bill. And who knows if they have this similar process now. I don't know if you've kept up with it, but... I don't know what they That do was now, the process of the day. Okay, well, that's interesting. The and cool then, part was when they issued new bills. Yeah, okay. So we would get them like these crisp new bills, and they come... Uh, a four by four sheet, yeah. so sixteen bills, and it's a thousand high, and they would actually come in these sheets. So we would have this big saw that would actually cut them. <laughs> You're cutting right? the bills. Yes, and back in those days, yeah. one of the f- fun things that people used to do if you go out for an evening is they'd pay something called. I don't know if you use this word on this here, but bullshit poker. We're playing. Oh yeah, you can poker. say anything you want. No, yeah. but I, I don't know what is bullshit poker. Uh, basically, you're it's using poker, but you but your hand is whatever your bill is. Okay. Right. So you're counting as you're saying. I have two two threes and two fours, and you, uh, well, you have to bid higher than the other person bid. But you have but your card is whatever your bill is. The serial number. Oh, on the, the bill. serial number. Because we had new ones, I actually was able to swap for a bill. So I walked around with a twenty dollar bill that had, if I remember right, eleven nines in it. I'm okay. just walking around with this bill, and every once in a while, somebody would challenge me at bullshit poker. <laughs> so what, wait, what does 11 nines mean in bullshit poker? Well, it's the same thing. You could, I could say I have 11 nines, and, and no one's going to believe me. They're going to go bullshit. Interesting. Okay. It's, so a, it's a guarantee. It's, it's like playing poker, <laughs> and you know for a fact you're going to get a, a royal flush. You're saying you were able to pick and choose what, what bills like you could, would you just like, what, ex, uh, you had a situation where you could exchange was, them? It was just very rare. They would just all come in. But occasionally you could get your supervisor to agree to take Yeah, to, can I switch this one? one? I want yeah. this one. Yeah, I mean, it sounds pretty innocent, right? As long as everyone's, uh, you know, paying attention to the process, right? Yes. And, uh, okay, so this is first job. How, like you just applied for this job? Yeah, I just applied for... Did you like money? Like, was there was there something about this that you were like, I like my well, obviously You're going to accounting school what, at that point. I just like wanted money. an office job. Just really, wanted, that was it. I just, I just wanted an office job because that, that uh, you know government type jobs. So you don't don't have to work work too much. Okay, but that, I, got yeah. bo- I got bored there actually pretty quickly, and I got an accounting job. Okay. Next job was actually interesting. It was for a savings and mortgage company. <laughs> Sorry, just to stop you. I don't know if anyone's ever said I got bored with a job, so I went and got an accounting job. <laughs> It's really, <laughs> it's really the uh, not really yeah. the ex- most exciting thing in people's minds. I get but bored counting money. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, you went to a, a job where you were just dealing with money on on paper. And yes. Uh, no. 
now it's just on paper. Yeah. But actually, it was the most, well, thinking back, it was the most amazing thing. So I was, this was 1982. So if you know about interest rates, that was the peak of the interest rates. Okay. So what, what's like a, a savings account uh, rate at this, at this Well, time? so at, at the time, we had um, five-year GICs at 19 and 7 eighths <laughs> and uh, five-year mortgages at 23 and three quarters. Wow. And they, they had, people were taking the five, if you think, why would you take a five-year? Why would you take a one-year? Because it might, it'll sort of come down. Yeah. And, and the thing is, people were losing their homes because the mortgage they had was 11% and it was coming due and now it's 20 uh, oh, so, so they two were three quarters. all interested in locking in the, for five years yes. because they, they thought it was going to get higher? They thought it was going to 30 and 40. Of course, so people of course. would lock in at, at, at crazy high rates. And the thing is, you think 19.7, 19 and 7.8 yeah. percent on a five-year GIC sounds awesome, right? Yeah. But if you go after taxes like and inflation, that's the lowest interest rates we'd ever seen. Like it's really? inflation was about thirteen. Oh, okay. And if, you pay, if you're paying half of it in tax, you clear ten. Minus, t- uh, you know, taxes and inflation, you're like minus three, minus four. Okay, so can we break so. that example down then? So, okay, so say <coughs> I got a thousand bucks, right? And oh, let's say a hundred bucks. So in a year, I'm an, and let's round it to twenty percent. <laughs> yeah. So, so I make twenty. I make twenty dollars of. of uh, in of interest. In, of interest. So let's say I pay ta- I pay ten bucks of tax on it. Yeah. So yeah, right? you might. So yeah. I only have ten dollars left. Yeah. Inflation is thirteen. So, so that means the cost of everything just went up by 13%. 13% so now I want to buy year. something with this $10 and I can't. It's I can buy less <laughs> than I could buy a year ago even though I made 19 and 7 eighths percent 19 and 7 eighths interest. Okay. And so if we contrast just to today for example, like so let's say what what's a mortgage rate now? 4, 3 yeah, or three, we, just oh yeah, 3. Yeah, 3. Uh, inflation is around 1. Yeah, about 2. 1 or 2. So actually infl- and now a GIC you know, GIC, you're probably getting 2%. Yeah. Right? You get two, you pay, if you have to pay interest, you get one minus two inflation, you're minus one. So so you're you're beating inflation maybe uh, <laughs> like with the, well, maybe with a GIC if you're lucky, if you get a good one, right? But a bank account or even a high interest savings account just keeps up with inflation these days, right? Right. Before tax. And that, meanwhile, at least back in the 80s though, the savings a savings account might have been would it wouldn't have been up at the nineteen with the GIC. Uh no no, but savings accounts were like uh ten, twelve percent. But, but if inflation account. was thirteen. Inflation's thirteen. So yeah. so they're usually the savings accounts are just keeping up with inflation. Yes. Do you and find it, find that standard? Yeah, well usually they're just a little bit lower than inflation, but yeah. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> High interest savings might might keep up with inflation, but yeah, but then those uh, those are hard to find, and they're usually not high interest savings account. Maybe not as accessible, maybe not as convenient because maybe they're with an online bank. Um, you know, maybe you have to set up a new account. Maybe they're only temporary, like a promotional rate, right? You never know when yes, it's going to exactly. go back down, right? It's like, oh, great, three percent, but how long is it going to last? And then, oh, wait, I got to move my money out of there. Yeah. Right, so yeah. Now the interesting thing is, not, we just like so we d- we just had what I think is what I call the big bond bubble. So okay. you know, bonds go up when interest rates are are falling. So they peaked in 1982, mm-hmm. and the bottom was 2015. So we have 35 years. Wow. Of interest rates, where interest rates went down almost every year. Yeah. And bonds actually did almost as well as stocks in that period of time. So people will look back now and say, "Oh, the last 20 years, oh, bonds did almost as well as stocks." Mm. Problem is, this was the bond bubble where interest rates—it's like the tech bubble in stocks. 
it's a period of time that's unlike any other time in history. So we can look at it uh, to compare to predict the future. Yes. Yeah, so t- to me, if you look at if you look at any history of bonds, you can't look at anything between eighty two and twenty fifteen because it's unlike anything we're going to see in our life again, where rates are falling every year. You know, it's really as opposed yeah. to the stock market, which we can sort of look at ebbs and flows over the last fifty years to kind of predict where it's hopefully headed in big gaps, right? Yeah, the stock market. You have periods like we had the the tech bubble, the late nineties. You have yeah. a few years where it got it was ridiculously high, and then of course we had a, it. It fell after for in two thousand and two, right? So, and so as but it's a short period of time. Bonds. It was a thirty five year. Yeah. Because interest rates were falling. Now, if anything, they're going to be flat or rising. It's also falling. For example, I found a lot of people now are buying dividend stocks, and yep. dividend stocks to the extent that you're buying them for the dividend, act like. Bonds, right? So they, they pay out a regular yeah. amount. So from twenty, from nineteen eighty two to twenty fifteen, dividend stocks generally did as well or, or better than the broad stock market, even though they tend to be more mature at slower growing companies. Be- now twenty fifteen passed, and of course, since twenty fifteen, dividend stocks have all lagged. Even the ad- dividend aristocrats have lagged the broad market. And and why is that? It's because they do they do better when interest rates are falling. Yes, we just had a thirty five year period of rates falling. That period ended in 2015, and now it's it's flatter rising rates. But with dividend so. stocks, you have the dividends that are being paid out, but you also have the potential of the stock price to increase as well, right? Right. But, but if you you know like compare yeah. it to a a growth stock or a, or a, or a stock that you don't buy for the dividend, you're just buying it for so regular. Total, yeah, you total, want it to double. Usually, yeah. when you buy stocks, you want to buy them for total total long term return is what you want. Okay. And what, to me, it was whether it's a dividend or a capital gain. Is is a detail. I'm I'm more worried about what's the total profit. I so you're make. saying the total uh, growth of dividend stocks, inc- the dividends plus the growth of the stock itself, have uh, sort of leveled out at this point, as opposed to being that you're saying they're growing over the last 35 years with the bonds. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, um, dividend stocks, especially ones with higher dividends. People think of them sometimes like a bond proxy. They're yeah. buying them for the dividend, yeah. not because they grow. No, that's just the side. Buy and the, hold, you get your dividend. You're getting your dividend, yeah. right? Well, so that dividend, when interest rates rise, that dividend gets worth less. So your your stock is worth the less, dividend right? itself but goes. If, down. if interest rates are falling, then your dividend alone is giving you an advantage. Like if you have a stock paying a two percent dividend, yeah. and interest rates are two. But then interest rates fall to one. Oh, now your dividend is worth more. The stock is worth more. Yeah. But if you, if your dividend is two and then interest rates rise from two to three, well, now your 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 dividend stocks tends to people go down. are going to go and get interest yes. instead of dividends because it's the better option. Or you just buy a growth stock instead, right? Because you can get other other stocks um, that will do better. So that's why I think you know dividend stocks did well for thirty five years, generally better than the broad stock market, but probably not what's gonna happen going forward. And it hasn't happened since twenty fifteen. So this is a, a good example of things that you you know today that uh, that you being there at the peak of the interest understand. Rates. And so now I'm you mentioned the interest rates because you were in school. I'm now wondering where you're going with that. So that, that was the interest rates. I was there in 82 at, yeah. the, at the peak. So it was really cool to see. It was a really weird time. An interesting thing that we were, we were doing at the time at our savings company is we had one of our staff would phone every financial institution every morning yeah. and ask what the rate was on their 30, 60, 90 term de- day term deposits. Yeah. And whatever it was, we would go an eighth of a percent higher and put an ad in the paper. So every day we were the single highest <laughs> uh, anywhere. The Smart. Single highest. And all we did is, we so we got tons of money that came in, 
And all we did is a block from us was a um, it was a Russian bank or national bank. I think it was a Russian bank. Okay. We would go down there buy a GIC or a term deposit, a ninety day term deposit with with them with a hundred thousand minimum, and it was a one percent higher rate. Okay. So we made a guaranteed one percent on all that on all that money. So we just kept running these ads and, and putting the money. As we're like risk riskless, right? So we we're we pay, we're paying on a on a term deposit of thirteen percent. Yeah. Right. But then we just walk down. The, a bunch of people come in and buy a five thousand and two thousand dollar term deposits, right? So we go a block away, buy a hundred thousand dollar term deposit at fourteen percent, one percent higher. That's amazing. And we made one percent on it. Yeah. So it, because you had volume of transactions, this one percent actually ended up making a lot of yes. money. So then I was talking to the guy at Laurentian Bank. Says, "So what do you guys do with the money?" And he said, "Well, you know what we do is we buy these bankers' acceptance notes. Yeah. And minimum investment is a million, and we make point one on it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and, and so it starts with the consumer buying a GIC from you. Let's say it's a thousand dollars. You and then you roll it. You get enough of those." And then you, or what did you say, savings uh, notes were the GICs? Yeah, there was you know, th- like 30-day or 90-day yeah. term deposit. Yeah, so yeah, so you get your, you have to keep it in for 30, 60, or 90 days to get the interest rate. And then you guys bundle them together, bring them to another bank and sell them. And then they bundle everything they get from everyone and sell them to somebody else. Where does it end? Yeah. How yes. far does it go? Um, I, I don't know what the bankers acceptances are doing it, but, but you know, again, they're making point one on it, but it's uh, on a million. But because right? it's a million, yeah. So like the more money, well, I guess the lesson here is the more money you have, the more money you can make with that's very exactly, little. That's exactly what I learned from it. And mm. also it's using other people's money. The consumer comes in, we're using their money and we're making a 1% on it. It's genius. And it's, um, so using other people's money. It's so just, lesson one, and how old were you at uh, this time? Uh, I was in my early 20s. Early 20s. Okay. So still taking my accounting courses. You're in the accounting course. You're working for, you, you, <laughs> you tried the Bank of Canada, and then you wanted something more exciting, so you went to accounting, and you're doing this at this uh, savings company. Settlers Savings and Mortgage. Mm, smart, smart. Like uh, maybe In Winnipeg. Like, in Winnipeg. Okay, so... And and where did you go after that? You're finishing your accounting. Did you stay there until you were done? Yeah, I don't. I was there for a few years. Um, yeah, r- around the time I got my degree is when I I got my next job. So next job actually was in manufacturing. I actually got a controller job, and I was with uh, Simmons, the mattress company. Okay, yeah, and so, which is also you get to see the the whole manufacturing. How mattresses are made. Yeah. So basically, I'm the accountant at the plant. Yeah. But I'm, in, you know, cost control. And, yeah, that's right. And uh, and part of the management team over there. It was interesting because I was still like my early 20s. That's pretty good for early and 20s. I got into accounting because I was good at math. Yeah. And at that time, I was nerdy and introverted and not that good with people. And here, next thing you know, I've got a management job. Yeah. And most days, I don't even turn my computer on, right? I'm, I'm, You're in man- meetings, It's right? a management job, right? Yeah. So, so I went into accounting thinking I was going to be, you know, in a quiet desk with a calculator. Yeah, you thought <laughs> and, you were going to do <laughs> And that's not what accounting is at all. It's a management with the, job. With your ledger book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where were computers uh, at at this time? Uh, well, were you- mainframes as well. Yeah. So you learn early on that. And, and uh, I mean, we can talk about later how yeah. uh, the evolution of computers and accounting but uh, yeah but being in manufacturing was yeah. different because it was was interesting because you know manufacturing has kind of left canada for the most part it since has then. Eh? but we were okay. but but i was there to see a lot of what, what had happened and actually it's taught me a lot about investing because sure. so i was working i was working for uh for working, working for this for this big company and then for in 1992 you know there was a big recession our profits are down 
Okay. So what? And then I learned what happens in a company when the profits are down. That all of a sudden, big scramble, a whole bunch of meetings. We got to get the profits back up. What are we going to do? So of course you lay off people. And we, we were I was the cost guy. They, yeah. Right? So we're looking at all of our costs. What can we cut? What can we reduce costs? And people are the first thing that comes to mind, right? But what, where did you go with it? Well, we knew all, we went we went through every everything every single expense. You know what? what yeah. What can you what can you cut? But actually, we we uh, did a few really interesting things at the time that, sure. that seemed unconventional. So, in the mattress industry at the time, the wisdom for a hundred years had been the cheapest way to make a mattress is you wait till you get orders for ten of the same mattress of the same size, and then you make them in bulk because the more you make, the cheaper they are to make. Because so it's ten minimum changeover, right? Yeah, okay. So it would often take several weeks before you'd make a certain mattress because we're collecting orders, right? Sure. But then, of course, we've always got a warehouse full of things that we've made. We make 10. We only got orders for three, so we had to make 10 and seven are sitting in the warehouse. So we went to two things. Just, these were common in manufacturing back then. Just in time and make to order. Okay. So we you get an order for one, you make one. We always thought, well, that would be more expensive, but then we focused on how to do the, the quick change and how to do it effectively. Okay. And also, we would order, so you'd go to Sears and order and buy a mattress. Yep. And they would transmit the order to us overnight. We would make them the next morning. Our computer would automatically order the materials. We'd make the the, the mattress new, and it get sh- got shipped that night. Like Sears would send it directly to your home. Really? So you got a you got a mattress that was made that day. You could do that. Yes, and, and so that, that didn't erode your costs, like. And because we, because now we, we said okay, we just made a commitment. We're just going to make. We get an order for one. We're going to make one. Yeah. And we learned how to do the changes effectively. And what we ended up doing is we reduced our inventory by ninety percent. Yeah. And the cost savings were huge. Like we didn't get obsolescence and we didn't get damages in the warehouse. And because you had to, because there was a, a drive to like you know where do we find this these savings you had to rethink the way you were doing it. Right. And the wisdom of 100 years is batches of 10. Turns out it's completely wrong. Yeah. Making, making one by one, you, 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 we reduced our inventory by 90%, saved a whole bunch of money. Our profits were back up again. Amazing. So, and so part of it I learned is, you know, sometimes it's just you're in a frame of mind where you think, where you believe something. Sure. It turns out, it's completely wrong, and something else is actually uh, that you hadn't thought of is, is what's right. what's the tagline on your site? Unconventional, unconventional wisdom. wisdom yeah, right? yeah. So it's, that's that one of the first pieces of unconventional wisdom there. Yes, there was an unconventional wisdom. Yeah, and I, and I also learned about so you know in the in the stock market, this is part of what gives me confidence in stocks long term. Okay, okay. Is um, you know people always want to so. You know, whenever there's a market crash, where the stocks go down, but they pretty well always bounce. Well, they always bounce back over time. Most of the time, pretty quickly. Yeah. Like eighty-eight percent of the time, they're back in one or two years. Sure. Why do they bounce back? This is exactly why. It's because you're investing in companies, and it's just like when I was at Simmons, ma- big management scramble. We got the profit back up. Yeah. And if the profit goes back up, the share price will eventually follow as well. Right? Yes. So, uh, so here, you know. If, the price had fallen. Why? Because our profits were down. Hmm. If you realize the stock market is connected to actual businesses uh, behind, and the reason for a lot of downturns is because maybe, I don't know, maybe everyone's not paying attention or not thinking outside the box, it kind of pushes yeah. them to do so? There, there's a lot of you know news media and emotion that, that, you know, that causes short-term fluctuations in the market. But over time, the market follows the profits of the underlying companies. Yeah. And if the profits of the underlying companies go up, 
the market will eventually go up as well, and that's and that's exactly what's happened with the market. So mm. that so actually thinking back, it was only thinking back years later. I remember why we did that. That's why the profits came back. That's yeah, that's really interesting comparison because yeah, people just think oh, it's a bunch of numbers uh, on a on an exchange, right? And it, you got to remember there's companies behind these, and they're going to do what they can to keep themselves going and invest in those, right? I, the example I remember is from Warren Buffett where uh, Amex, I think, had some kind of a scandal, then the price went down, right? Like somebody said something or somebody did something and, and the stock price went down. And he went, he went into a restaurant and he said, are you still accepting American Express? And they said, yes. And then he bought like a bunch of shares of it or something or, or like went and sat on the board because he knew that they were going to be around for a while and this was just a blip, you know, just like you're saying, right? And so we, we can't like just panic. If you know the company, if you do own individual shares and you know the company, right, you can think, well, is this a good company? Are, are they going to bounce back? Well, then I'm going to hold. Yeah. Right? It happens with the broad market as well. Right? Yeah. Right, you you get a risk. in two thousand and eight. What happened? Well, the profits of all kinds of companies plunged. Yeah, right. The market went down, right? But then the profits bounce back, so the stocks will eventually bounce back as too. The market overall overall does the same thing. And why do we have this instinct? Like when there's a crash like that, like I don't have this instinct, but I know a lot of people do to just like take your money out because you think it's just going to keep going lower and lower and lower. Is that it? It's like if it, oh we never know, so we might as well. Retract. One thing that's really horrible for investing yeah. in the stock market specifically is the human gut. If yes. your gut is human, then you uh, like. So I study great investors. Every great investor has a method for calming down their gut sure. because your gut will always tell you the wrong thing. Right? The market is <laughs> plunging. It'll say sell, 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 and the market is booming. Like the tech stocks, right? In, in the yeah. in the late nineties. Oh yeah, buy, buy more. So yeah, why? This is such and, a weird association. Yeah, it's because our mind tends to think that a trend will continue. Mm. And it, in investing, things go through cycles. Like there's no trend that just goes in a straight line forever. Yeah, so it's, it's not common th thinking in our head to think that when the stocks go down to the bottom, that's the perfect time to buy because they will eventually go back up. That's not like natural like, is, thinking in our if head. If you think logically, yeah. that's obviously true. Yeah, your, your gut is not going to tell you that because the the, oh. the the bottom day when it's best to to buy is after a, a whole bunch of down days, right? and everyone's and dismal. And your gut is going to say panic. Yeah, but that's exactly when your your head has to kick in and say, you know what, Let, things are really cheap. So for example, in two thousand and eight, uh, March of uh, February of uh, yeah, early March of two thousand eight. Actually, it was February. I actually posted on my blog an article about this, this is the best buying opportunity you can have sure. in your life. Yeah. And I didn't know where the bottom was. All I knew is, you know, we were like almost 40% cheaper than we were just a few months ago. So it doesn't and matter it, if it keeps going down. It, it doesn't matter if you get exactly the bottom. Yeah. But we're 40% cheaper than we were a few months ago. I know I have confidence that profits are going to eventually recover and the market will eventually recover. So that's a 40% profit right there, right? Yeah. If you know that. At uh, that time, calling all clients, you know, it's any money you have, you can, you should put it in. Of course, people were panicking, and it's like, uh, I do what I call lifeboat training with clients. When times are good, you talk to them about what are we going to do when we have the next crash? Not if. Yeah. When. So there's going to be a crash in the next 30 years. There'll be a few more. Just to jump ahead for a sec, do you actually invest people's money for them uh, currently, or did you at one point? I did. For, I did for many years. Yes. Yeah. Now I, I do. I guess indirectly, I refer people to portfolio managers. Sure. You give them the the plan, 
and you give them the goal of what they need to get from their investments, and then the portfolio managers help them meet that goal? Is that yes. So I write a financial plan yep. for clients, and then they can go off, go off and do it themselves, or uh, I take on a certain number of clients on what I call full service. Sure. So full service is between me and my team, we're looking after all parts of their finances. Okay. So I find it useful if I also know I know the whole package. I know what's yeah. important to them. I know what their goals are. I know, so I referred them to a portfolio manager that I that I know and that the, I'm confident like directly in. connected with you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, and I understand what what's happening with the investments. I know exactly what the allocation is, and all that. Uh, we do the tax returns for, for them. I have good contacts for mortgages, so I, I know kind of all the pieces. We know their cash flow and their net worth, and yeah. So I find if I know everything, it's a far higher level of advice. Then if I know certain parts, and that's why it's, at, I guess at this point in my career, I only take on clients where I know the whole picture. Okay. It's a whole higher level of advice. I only know a part of it, then I can only, you can only do so much. It's just, like any, it's just like anything. If you're missing a key piece of information, like if you're doing some taxes, for example, and they don't tell you they have a, you know, a business in another country, well, then how are you going to be able to... Yeah. For, I, I, a simple example. I'm, you know, RSP season, we're phoning a lot of people because I'm, I know exactly what their income is. Sure. And I did their tax return last year, so I, I know what other factors they have in their income. So I know that if they put 12000 in their RSP, that'll be at the 40% bracket. But any more than that, the rest will be at a 30% bracket. Yeah. So specifically, you should put 12000 in and not thirteen because... Because that's the amount that will work for you. So you can get really and, catered advice. And if you do that, you're going to get a refund of $5,000. So therefore, if, if you only have seven today, we can borrow 5000 from a credit line because I already know you're going to get a $5,000 refund a month later. Hmm. right? And we'll e-file your tax return. You get them pretty quickly. So you put your you borrow five from a credit line, you take seven thousand that you have, you get your refund of five a month later. It's only because I know all the pieces that I can give that advice. Otherwise, to try to do that without having done their tax return or without doing and because you're involved, you can make sure that they don't go in and spend that refund, and they do actually pay off the credit line because yes. otherwise it can be dangerous to borrow to invest. Yes, right. Yes, and this RSP top up ahead of time is bigger. Like you're, you're actually putting thirty. You end up putting. 30 or 40 percent more in your rsp every year yeah and it's it's even more than if you waited afterwards so you get the refund because we're getting we're borrowing money from a credit line that we pay back a month later but you get a 40 percent refund on it immediately people tend to be scared of, of borrowing to invest though and and but this is a very specific situation this is a, this is right? a one one month i'm borrowing it yeah in, i'm month. borrowing it in february and I'm going to get a refund in March to pay it back. Yeah, and now, now you can get the refund in, in 24 hours sometimes, right? It's they're really quick with the CRA yeah, these days. Yeah, they're paying it usually in a week or two. Yeah, right? so less or, yeah. If you have direct deposit and like auto uh, no, notice of assessment, you can get it almost immediately. Yeah, it's, it's very different. Like borrowing to invest is a long-term thing, a completely different strategy. Very different. This is, we're borrowing for one month money that we know we're getting back. And it's just to take advantage of the, of the, of the to make the most tax-efficient situation, which is your expertise, basically. Yes. So uh, let's say you've got 6000 bucks. You're gonna What you're going to do is borrow four, yep. put, it in, put it in, so you put 10000 in. Yep. Now you get a refund of four. So you, so you get that, that four you borrowed and you got to pay it right back, right? Yeah. If you didn't do that, you'd only put six thousand in. Yeah. Your refund would only be twenty four hundred bucks, mm -hmm. right? And then you could invest the twenty four hundred bucks. Now you get another refund a year from now, but meanwhile we put four thousand in. Yeah. 
and you get your refund, and you get f- that 4000 invested already. It's money you didn't even have. And the whatever week or month that you pay in interest is negligible. And it's, yeah. It's yeah. It's really not compared to the amount yeah. of tax savings you're getting. And this is it's just only a month. to get it in earlier because time makes a difference. Right. right? And now instead of, instead of having 8000 in my RSP, I just put 10000 in. And so from doing this, I can put 20% more in my RSP every single year without using more cash flow. And just generally, would you have an idea of how much that might, like, say, shave off somebody's, like, financial independence day or retirement date? Like, it's, it's huge. Think if you could up your, up your contributions by 20% every year, yeah. it's a huge amount extra. RSP top-up strategy. Yeah. Simple. If you know all the parts, it's a, it can be a, it's a simple concept. You, you want to make sure you get it right because you're borrowing 4000 from a credit line. I want to make sure the client's actually going to get a $4,000 refund. That's right. Because <laughs> if they don't, then they're going to be mad at me. That's on you. <laughs> And, and you can only know this, as you, if you said, and I, but I think it's worth repeating, if you know all the parts. And, so, and you, have the, you have knowledge of many years of I, doing this. I know what their job is. I know all the deductions they have. I know what investments they have. So I, I have a good idea of what uh, taxable investment income they're going to have. right? Plus, so I, I've done their tax return the year before. So I often do it in detail. I actually will take their last year's tax return make one or two, t- if, if the RSP was this amount, how much would the refund be? And I actually look exactly, I know exactly where the tax bracket breaks are. So this much is in this bracket, more gets into a lower bracket. I find these very interesting analyses as well. I mean, not every people probably think these things are boring, but just to be able to get more money or more tax back and then yeah. more money into the RSP account. Even though I'm not working as an accountant, having been an accountant and got all the tax knowledge That's is, right. is, is, has been hugely beneficial. And tax is cool. Like, yeah, investing, yeah, you make money long-term. Taxes, I can tell you exactly how much you're going to get, and you're going to get it right away. But you are you say you're not working as an accountant, but you're doing people's taxes. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Isn't that, I mean, what, you mean you're not working like... I'm not doing accounting. Not no. doing accounting in the corporation or something. Yeah, I just do but, their tax returns. Yeah. But, but it's the tax knowledge. It's very valuable. It can, it's a huge piece of the whole of the whole puzzle. If you optimize all your tax all the way through your life... Yeah, it's, it's people don't even think about it, and it's huge. Okay, yeah. so let's pause and go back. <laughs> yes. So we're now you are working. You finish your accounting degree and working at Simmons. Yes. So from there, actually, yeah. that's when I started my financial planning practice. Yeah. Why? I guess I just got I got tired of working for the man, working for the big company, and sure. so I've always been the type that I thought I knew better than my bosses, and I just <laughs> I wanted to be self-employed. But I just gotten married, and we just bought a house. Okay. And uh, so you know, so my. My wife thought she'd married, you know, the accountant with the salary and the pension. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a year later, I show up and say, I want to be a financial planner. It's a 100% commission job, <laughs> no pension. <laughs> and we just, bought the, we just bought the house. Yeah. So, of course, what her word, words were, as soon as we pay the mortgage off, you can, you can do whatever you want. Okay. And thinking, of course, I will fail, but at least she will have her job. Okay. So what did you do that? We put the mortgage on a three-year amortization. We paid it off over three years. Wow. And in those three years, I took my CFP, Certified Financial Planner, degree. So yep. I, was, I was still working Simmons during the day, taking yep. my courses at night. We paid off our mortgage in three years. And also, at the same time, I was trying to 
get clients. And, you know, as an accountant, making a baking cold calls was... Yeah, at the time. So you're get, trying to get clients while you're studying for your CFP. Because yes, you, you got to have... full-time, studying for CFP and trying to get clients. And living really frugally, right? You must have to be able to pay off yeah, the mortgage. Yeah, we just made huge payments every every two weeks. Big payment, big payment. So we, we just changed it to a three amortization and just made just made the payments. Was it hot dogs for dinner? Like, well, how did you how did you afford to do this? Yeah, well, I don't know. We we both had good had good jobs and was making a bit of extra, and we just we just we just did it. And it makes me wonder how many people are in this situation where, if they really wanted to do that, if there was motivation, could they just shift their expenses to right. that? Well, see, most people will spend whatever they make. Yes, and, yes. and for us is you know we just got married, so it was just. So we weren't used to spending a lot of money. Yeah. So we had a lot extra. So we put all of it on on the debt. Okay. And we just paid it off. And that's I only did it because that's what my my wife insisted that I, <laughs> that I could do. And actually, so I was lucky at the time. I got a teaching financial planning gig. It was, a, it was really a, it was, yeah. So with the dealership I was with, the um, the credit unions were just getting into mutual funds and okay. Financial, <clears throat> okay. financial planning. So I got a job writing courses on introduction to financial planning, introduction to mutual funds. So and I was teaching it was me and a couple of the other guys were teaching all the the big uh, the advisors at all the big credit unions. So wow. we taught three hundred advisors at credit unions. Yeah, what and a great we, way we, to we learn write, for yourself. Write a, write a week long course on financial planning and and that's a way to be an expert would teach it yeah and it's i found doing that was amazing like writing a course forces you to organize all your thinking absolutely and to do that early in my career was actually it was actually really useful to be able to do that and so you had your method you had your what you wanted to do down pat i had a method yeah yeah like, I mean, I had limited knowledge at that point but I'd, i had a method and you know, it's funny that I'm teaching. That, you know, I've only been a financial planner for like two years, and I'm writing the course. You're now. already doing it, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, but but it's just organizing the stuff you learned, right? I mean, really, and being able to communicate that to others. You were saying you're an introverted uh, geek. I think those are the words that you used earlier. But you're you can't be that now. Well, you know, part of it changed. So. Uh, I I met my wife Anne taking the Dale Carnegie course. Okay. So the, the sales rep said, if you take the Dale Carnegie course, it'll change your life. And what what is the Dale Carnegie? It's teaching self confidence. Okay. Yeah. Through public speaking. Sure. Because sure. Pu- public speaking is the number one fear of most people. It is. It's ahead of death. They'd rather death, die. Yeah. Death is number four. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get that. Um, when I was younger, I was terrified of public speaking but i took this course i met my wife and of course it did change my life and she ended up becoming the top instructor for them uh a couple years later like in the 90s she was their top instructor for the dale carnegie yes so and i learned so much about self-confidence and if i hadn't done that i would never have been able to you know make cold calls and actually go up and and write a course and then go teach people and being confident speaking to people is a learned thing Mm, you can be naturally introverted but you can learn to be to be an effective communicator. So, okay, you're teaching CFPs, you're you're and you're now you're getting clients? Yes. So, and actually, so at the end of the 3 years, yeah. mortgage was paid off. My oh. side hustle was making as much money as my full-time accounting job. Wow. And uh and I had my CFP degree. And our so, what decade are we in now? Uh, 1997. So it was in the late 90s. Yes. And, you know, side hustles are huge now. Not a big thing to talk about then. And so you're doing what a lot of people are like, you know, start your blog, uh, wait till it makes as much as your day job, then quit that. You did that in the late 90s. Well done. Exactly. So then at that point, I quit my job and... And I was a full financial planner full time. Sail on forward, and so initially I, working from the house, and then um, my wife actually noticed that um, 
you know, he looks pretty good. Like she's in the getting in the morning, getting out, scraping the car and driving yeah, yeah. off. I'm in my house <laughs> like coat a with a coffee, you know, waving. <laughs> so, um, but you know, it was, it was only a year later that, that, um, there was all kinds of admin work and all kinds of other work. And she was actually really good connecting with people. Right. Yeah. She's just, so, uh, so about a year later she quit her job and we just, we did it together as a team ever since. Nice. But you still work together? We still work together now. Really? Well, what are the what are the roles? Like what uh, are you are you're the financial planner? Yeah, we mean, we're both financial advisors. Yeah, now. oh, you both are financial. Yeah, I'm, the, I'm the more tech I'm the one that writes the financial plans, but yeah. she's the more relationship with existing clients and Oh, that's amazing. I did, I I had no idea. I I just kind of assumed it was Ed uh, doing it solo. I mean, she started out as just being doing admin for me, and then she became a coach, and she got involved. Well, in what was she doing for work at the time, if you don't mind? Uh, well, she was at a management job. She was with, you know, the pages, you know, the white glue you ate as a kid? Okay, yes. yes. So yeah. she was the materials <laughs> manager there. She was also in manufacturing. Okay. Making making this stuff. So obviously, then, yeah, you guys are really good with numbers and, uh, you know, really good at, uh, you know, both of you with people. And then she took a personal coaching course. That's on top of the Carnegie or that after was the after the she Carnegie? Did, yeah. So, so that was kind of what, a lot of what she brought as the is the relationship part to our to I like our practice. this. I like this uh, continuous learning and growing aspect. Yeah, so my parents did that too. My dad was a dentist and my mom was a, a, a running the office dental receptionist, dental right. assistant. So you get yeah. home at the end of the day, you can't say, so how was your day? That's right. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you could talk about that for a sec, do you just make sure you always have time for yourself? You, yeah, you need you need some space. You need some of your own activities. Yeah. <laughs> own acti- <laughs> yeah, you just need that sometimes. And, and well, now though... J- in the day, like, are you guys, you know, like, she'll make sure you have information, uh, or you're putting the plans together, and then she does she deal with the clients? You're dealing with the clients? How does it, how does it go? Well, we do, we do a lot of meetings jointly. Yes. But, but um, I'm more focused on new clients and the more complex situations. Yeah. And she's a lot of, uh, with a lot of our existing co- clients, there's a lot of follow-up, like regular things that have to be done. And so all the regular review, reviews and mortgages coming due and activities we have to re- there's all kinds of things that, you, that when you're working together with a client there's all kinds of reasons that you talk to them from people i've talked to most cfps or most most planners have you need a, an assistant uh, you need someone taking care of someone to help you maybe they're they're really good at admin stuff they're doing the stuff that doesn't require you to be like a full cfp to do like once the plan is done maintenance follow up to help you stay on track, yeah. right? Yeah, that's a good. It's a yeah. good partnership. We have four of us working there now. Yeah, yeah. Who uh, who else? Uh, we do have, you have another f- another full time plan- planner that's a CFP. Yeah, and plus a full time admin person. Okay, and so uh, like once you started this, this is what you've been doing for like twenty two years. Is that basically? Yep. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yes. That's amazing. So okay. Twenty six years now. Twenty six. Yeah. Well, so mm-hmm. wait, you said ninety seven. You well, started I, before that. Uh, that was when I was full time. Yes, of course. So ninety four th- is when I started as a as a side hustle. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So. You've been doing this for a while, and you, you, I think you probably have a number of how many plans you've done. I've written over a 1,000 financial plans Yes, uh, in total. So, you know, early in the, when I got into the career, everybody was all about, it's just about selling mutual funds and selling insurance. That's what I was, but yeah. to me, it was always, I took these courses, and they taught about financial planning. So, you know, dumb me, I thought, okay, I'm going to do planning. So, yeah. <laughs> so I just focused entirely on planning, you. and I found out very quickly that there was like, no competition in Canada. Everybody else is just selling stuff, but you know, doing act, when you're actually writing a financial plan, uh, hardly anybody in Canada. Like, yeah, if you find people who actually has a written financial plan 
that has all their goals, like when they're going to retire specifically, that they're following. And you'll find it's probably less than 1% of Canadians. So people started with, like, this is the late 90s, early 2000s. I'm sure it was, yeah, investments first, right? And then you get a plan as part of your investments and that they, they get paid out of the investments. Is that basically, how were you getting paid at the time? Well, so, I mean, I was still doing investments. You had, but that was the me, model at the but time. But it was all about, you talk to people first, you do a financial plan first. Yes, and that's the, and that's what leads everything. And then, of course, most people need to be doing investing. But whatever whatever is in the plan is what is what we implement, right? Well, for most people, it's forget the planning. Most advisors, it was just forget the planning. They would just, they would forget the plan. They wouldn't even do it. Um, yeah, you know what? Here, here's a stat. I don't. This stat is not published, but here, but I've know lots and lots of financial planners. Sure. Here's my number. Less than three percent of financial planners have written even a single financial plan in their career. Is this someone who has a CFP designation? Is that what you Even mean? Even CFPs, yeah. I think I don't know. Oh. I don't. I don't know the stat, but no. I'll bet you they're less than five percent of certified financial planners. Have really? More than like you have to write one financial plan to get your CFP to sample one. Sure. The ninety-five percent of CFPs have probably not written another one of that quality. Yeah, because you right? got a comprehensive one. Yeah, a comprehensive one, right? There's people do a one-off on one little thing. or well, What I find is a lot of the financial planning software is built for what I call a fake plan. You put in the client's name and address. You put in their income. Yes. And it's a, a bunch of assumptions. It prints off a bunch of glossies. There's your financial plan. Now let's talk about investments. I've used these. Right? Yeah. And it's, it's 10 minutes. So I've had people say, I got a financial plan. I went to the bank. I said, how long did it take? 10 minutes. What does the plan say? What are you supposed to do? When are you retiring? I don't know. What's the lifestyle when you're retiring? I don't know. Yeah. What do you have to do to get there? I don't know. Where is your plan? I don't know. Okay, yeah. you, don't, you don't have a plan. You should have it <laughs> like in your email or in your hand if it's printed. Yeah, if you don't like if you have a financial plan, you should know I'm retiring when I'm 62 on 97,000 a year. Yeah. And yeah. that includes 15,000 a year for travel, and to get there I have to put 15,000 a year in my RSP like so you Because pay, you had that conversation yes, about and you want money for travel or whatever it is you want. You you pick you decide on the lifestyle you want to have when you That's retire. Right. Then you work out exactly how much you need before and after tax. You work back so to get there, how much do I have to put away and what kind of return do I have to make on it? And you you make a plan and then you do it. So you should know exactly how much you have to put away every year and how you have to invest it. And if you don't know that, you don't have a plan. No, you don't have it's, a plan. It's the GPS for your life. Do you, uh, do you not use any uh, financial planning software? I use one, but it's a fairly simple software. Yeah. But it's, it's, and it's something that I can do. In, like To me, is financial planning has to be done together with the client. Yes. Right? So I sit down with you and we look at, okay, this is how much we work out. First of all, what's your cash? What's your lifestyle now? Yeah. Let's talk about how you want to retire and we'll work it out very specifically before and after tax. Yeah. Now we plug it into the financial planning software and so you want to retire at 55. Sure. And say, okay, to get there, you have to invest, you know, 5000 a month. Like, <laughs> I can't do that. All right, all right, let's, let's try something else. Let's, yeah. So, let's, so we talk about, you know, what asset allocation you're going to have, like what kind of rate of return are we going to get? Yeah, exactly. What pensions you have. And, and, then, and then we're looking at, there's a number of different factors. So very often the first draft of what, of how you want to retire is just it's the it's just the first draft, yeah. It's it's not possible. No. So now we think, okay, so what do you have to do? You either have to work longer or you have to <laughs> invest more. Yeah. Right? Or you have to retire on less so we can go back to the goal we set and retire on less. Yeah, reevaluate. Or we can invest differently. So let's let's just look at all these options and let's let's work out something that's believable that you that you that you think you can do and that is a good goal and for you. And that's let's 
And now, we, and then we have a plan, right? And this is not a short process for you. It it takes quite a while. Like usually, the first, the main planning meeting, people actually enjoy it because all about it's not a bunch of numbers. It's, it's all about exploration. It's yeah. all about your life. How do you want to live? Discussion, and discovery. Yes, and I can tell you very quickly. You know, that way is not. Yes, you want to retire on really luxurious <laughs> <Sure>. fifty-five. <laughs> okay, but you know what? You're not going to like what you have to do to get there. So let's talk about what you can reasonably do. And so the first meeting usually is uh, three, four, five hours long. Not all at once. All at once. <laughs> One long meeting. All People come in for life. the day, like you. Yes. Or you go to them. How does uh, it work? Online. To, they, they, online, or they come to my office. Wow. Yeah. And it's one long meeting, but we get the first draft of it there, and I get all the information about the client, and then there might be some things to get afterwards, but then after that, I'll I'll do all the projections, and I'll kind of yeah. see if I come up with a better idea than what I just what we had in the meeting, but I've already got the goal, and I've ha- I know all the different parts of the client, and then we'll write the whole plan. The plan is usually eight or, eight or ten pages that are custom written specifically for you. Yeah. Plus, you know, ten or twenty pages of schedules and attachments, and which that's the stuff that, that you put into you. You plunked some of the numbers into financial yeah. planning software. Yeah, that's what because you have to have out. something that has been vetted as including up-to-date government benefits, right? Yes. That's, a, that's one of the harder things for, like, if I'm doing uh, my retirement plan in Excel, I can't figure out what my CPP and <laughs> OAS is going to be, right? Right. So yeah, that you need software for that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you, you can, well, you can look those things up. but You can look yeah, at tables, those, I guess. You could look at tables. If people have a pension, they have a group plan at work, and we have your RSPs and, yeah. and whatever investments, and it's it's... We also part of the plan is we're looking at where should you be investing RSP or TFSA or yeah based on uh, whatever availability uh, you have yeah. in your accounts and and your tax situation however much money you're making now those kinds of things right yes are people of different ages when they uh, when they come into you or is there well, like we've, a, well we've done all different ages is there a typical age um, when people come well you know what what happens Bo is most people kind of wander through life when they're young and at some point yeah. they wake up and realize you know what I should be doing something smarter with my money yeah. and for most people they're like in their 40s when it happens some people are in their 30s occasionally I get people in their 20s that are already I want to I want to build wealth but I get some in their 60s oh I want to retire next year uh, what can we do yeah <laughs> it's, uh, well, next year okay I can't do a lot in one year time uh, travel yeah right is that your answer uh, well, let's so, go well <laughs> in that way you just do the best you can like yeah so Basically, however they want to retire, it's not happening. But at least you can prove it to them, yes, right? But we can, okay, let's look at your situation. What's the best we can do given what we hear? If you're in your 40s, you you can, um, usually if, if you start in your 30s, you can usually get, and you invest effectively and put reasonable amount away, you can usually get pretty well whatever you want. Yeah. You start in your 40s, it takes some work, but you can get mostly what you want. You start okay. in your 50s, we're in compromise mode. Sure. Right? Yeah, it's, yeah. You're, you're not, not going to... You're not getting all of it. One vacation. You have, you have to put of. away more than you may, might like to do, but yep. you're in compromise mode. And okay. 60s, of course, it's... Uh, it's whatever it is. Yeah. It's, so, I mean, the 20s, though. If anyone comes to you in your 20s, like, uh, can you probably get them into early retirement is that like if somebody really starts yeah as long as, i mean you gotta some people just spend everything they make but sure, uh, yeah we get we're getting kids of clients now that just finished university and have a good paying job yeah. so they come to me you know they're 25 years old oh yeah right? and, and they're already making eighty thousand a year you know before you get comfortable with a big yeah, lifestyle please. yeah don't let's start putting a, a good amount away early and if you, then retiring early all these things are easily possible but you, if you start when you're young have you been able to convince somebody who's 25 to like just go for it uh, <laughs> or is it hard 
I can educate people, but I find it's the motivation has to come from within. Sure. I've met uh, you know, a fair number of people in their 20s that are just motivated, and I can easily help them. Okay, you, good. You can retire early. Yeah. Um, if somebody, you know, you can't, I, you can't convince somebody. No, you can't. Eh? If yeah. they don't want to do it, you know, I can educate them and show them the benefit of it and tell them what but to do. But it doesn't. It won't work but, if they're you know, not ready. For most people in their 20s, long term is, you know, the weekend. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So I'm talking, you know, 20, 30 years. And of course, if you st- if you start when you're 25 and you invest a comfortable amount for 30 years, you can retire at 55 and really comfortably. Okay, yeah. So let's. So you're you're financial planner. You're you got clients, and your wife has joined you at this point. Yes. Yet? Okay. Yep. Yeah, and I'm focusing just uh, mainly on financial planning, and and things are building up pretty quickly. And it's you know the late 90s, so it's a tech bubble. So that was when. You know, looking back, it was still pretty, you know, I started off like most people do investing, where you just follow the crowd. And yeah. Do, right? And at that time, everybody was buying tech stocks, so that's so... So you did too? Of course, yeah, we're buying. We're okay. Buying, well, not everything, but we're, but a, a good exposure to it. And yeah. Of course, that's kind of, when we, that's a big lesson learned about following the crowd, what sure. we're doing. What happened? Because, uh, well, of course, we had, we had great returns for a few years, and then we had a big fall, right? Yeah. So, um, but you were effect like it affected. You said you had exposure to it, but not like you know you're buying all of all of your yeah, money. Yeah, it was just it was a it was a portion. Like quite a few clients had tech stocks or growth funds or something. So, so you'd recommend a par- portion of their portfolio be in tech stocks. Yeah, at the, at the time, yes, yes. At the time, we were putting a portion into it. Yeah, but a lot of it was just because tech had been doing well, and sure, you just keep thinking, oh, it's going to do well. Everybody's buying tech, and, and so you, lear- you a, learned. You learned. Yeah, I learned about, and that was the last time in my career. We got caught up in a bubble. Yes. Now I recognize it. When you, whenever you see the masses all doing something. Yes. Don't uh, do that. Don't do that. Like we had <laughs> after that, we had the income trust bubble. Everybody was piling in income trusts in the, around 2006, six seven. Because of government rules like, were around uh, income and they trust? Changed, yeah. To me, is it, it, didn't look, it, was, it was, didn't look sustainable. People were buying things because it, it paid a high amount out, but it wasn't necessarily the profit it was making. Like People oh. weren't looking at the rate of return of their investment. They're just looking at how much it pays out, and a lot of them were artificially inflated inflated uh, of course the government came down and shut it down yeah again a bubble that ended now we're in it to me what i was at a dividend bubble like if you if you meet someone who's picking their own stocks today 90 percent of them like i think it's i think the tech bubble was probably 60 or 70 people were largely in tech sure the dividend bubble today probably 90 percent of individual stock investors are buying dividend stocks it's all everybody's buying are we still in is you're saying it's we're still in it still yeah even though they outperformed until 2015, and they've been lagging the last four years, and, yeah. and probably will continue. Everybody's buying dividend stocks now. If you if you know someone buying their own stocks, ask them what they're buying. A dividend will be one of the first words out almost everybody. Well, what should they be doing? Are like diversifying first of all? But yeah, what? to me, is it's well, we're looking for long term total return. Yeah, and you know what? Most stocks pay dividends. Yeah, so it's not like I'm saying to avoid dividends, but I'm saying don't buy something just because it has a dividend. Yeah, like the best dividend, but you don't care about anything about the company. Right, and also if you're buying dividend stocks, you tend to be all in Canada because that's the ones that have the preferred tax. Tax, rates. I know, and people will right? buy. Like if you have only t- Canadian tax uh, dividend eligible dividends uh, as income, well, you don't pay tax for up to what forty grand. Or fifty grand now. Well, see, oh, that's actually a bit of a misnomer. So it is, eh? You okay, a, good. You can make about fifty-five thousand with no tax if you if only you have, dividend. If you have only Canadian, Canadian dividends, eligible dividends, dividends, and you have no other income, no other income. But people miss the other part. 
no other income. Yeah. Um, not married. Oh. Because if you have a spouse's earning income, it. oh, they they, they they will lose. Interesting. Thir- they'll have their their. They're claiming you as a dependent. They lose thirty percent. Okay. Based on that, right? Also, it doesn't work when you're sixty-five. When you're retired, it doesn't work at all. Because if you have no other income, you get the guaranteed income supplement. Then that so, goes. Uh, so yeah, okay. if um, your Canadian eligible dividend, there's a 69% clawback on the GIS. So if you're 65 and have no other income and get to, you, you apply for the old age security, you get this GIS. Um, if I get a $10,000 dividend, I lose 6900 of my of my government pension ah. because of a dividend. So it doesn't work at all when you're over 65. So, so th- this no- misnomer about it. It's so specific, right? It's so, so specific. And everybody's like, you can make free money, like getting no tax. No other income, single and under 65. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that like very few people have no other income because otherwise, how are you getting those dividend stocks <laughs> in the first place, right? And then by the time you have enough to only make 55000 from dividends, you're 65, yeah. let me tell you. Yeah, <laughs> I know people are trying to save up with dividends, and the idea is they're going to quit their job, and the dividends are going to sustain them. But first of all, you know what? They're not buying necessarily the stocks with the highest long-term total return. No. They're just buying these dividend stocks. Secondly, they're all in Canada, which is not diversified and is slower growth. And they're paying taxes every year when you could buy... So the lowest taxes are actually deferred capital gains. So capital gains have yeah, lower taxes. 50% of your rate. Yes. Right? So they have lower taxes like dividends do. They're slight, a little bit different, but, but lower tax. The big difference is dividends you always pay tax this year. Yep. Capital gains, I can defer that for 20 years, right? I can buy a stock and hold it for 20 years. I, if, I, if I want to, I can just wait. The way you do it is you just hold your investment. You just let it grow. Oh, sorry. Without, with, yeah, right. of course. You can defer the capital gains by def- not cashing in the by stocks. By not cashing yeah, in. Right? Of course. You, just, you can defer it. That makes sense. So, you know, would you rather pay your dividend uh, 10 or 20% dividend tax this year or 20% capital gains tax 20 years from now? Because dividends you get at, uh, paid out quarterly or annually. You, you or, can't or, defer or, them. Yeah, you get monthly. them that year or your tax that year. Right? Yeah. So. Oh, that's very interesting. So you can see something growing in your, ta- in your account. I mean, it, let's just say it's a taxable account. Um, and as long as you don't get any income from it, which is dividends, you can see yeah. it growing and it might be doubled in value, but you don't pay any tax until you're ready. Yeah. That's, right, exactly. I like that. So, I like that. Okay. So yeah. ba- back to you. So after, after so that's, I, that was what, when I was like, uh, I started investing lousy like everybody following the crowd. Yeah. You're um, I tried getting into spreadsheets where I was going to fork, you know, try, I was trying to do market timing with this massive spreadsheet. Really? I did that for a few years. Okay. And I realized None of this does it. None of this works. So you're learning right? investing on the job. I just yeah, I'm just just trying to figure out how to how to do it effectively. Sure. And then what changed my life is I took a I took a hedge fund course. Okay. So a, a program came out that was only out for a little while called the Certified Hedge Fund Specialist. It was really in depth. It was like university level. What I learned there. So hedge funds they're actually very complex. There's 14 different categories of strategies, oh, all man. kinds of different things that that all kinds of complicated things that they can do, but they're all about having the really good fund manager. Okay. Right. So generally, the the, the saying is with the mutual fund, it's 80 percent market, 20 percent manager, good, good manager, and actively Hedge, managed. Yeah. Right. Hedge funds, it's the opposite. It's 80 percent having a good manager, 20 percent the market. Really. They can, they can hedge out. They can a lot of the strategies they can hedge out market risk. Oh. So if you hedge out market risk, then your return is all based in 
on how good the manager is. So that makes sense. That's very skill-based, that one. Then. It's very okay. skill-based. Yeah. And so I learned from that to how to identify who a really good fund manager is. Okay. And I carry that into other kinds of investing. And that became my investing skill. I finally realized, you know, rather than trying to outguess everything myself, yeah. um, you know, I'm, a financial, I'm, not, I'm not investing full-time. The best way I found to invest is find the best people. Just like I'm not yeah. going to be an NHL hockey player, yeah. but I can recognize <laughs> a really good hockey player. So I can tell you who, some, who the all-stars are in the NHL. Same thing investing. Right, I'm not the, the world's best investor is not me, but I can look around and I can figure out who they are. So let's just invest with them, and okay. that's become my investing philosophy ever since then. Yeah, it all started with that that old that hedge fund course. Have you modified that to include ETFs and index funds and stuff as well? How how do you well how are you looking at investing today? Everything that I well everything that I recommend is all about the fund manager. So interesting. Um, to me, I mean, ETFs, if, if it was um, actively managed with an exceptional fund manager, that's fine. Like, yeah, ETFs okay, so a, you don't do passive uh, investments. I don't do passive because, you know, so I mean, first one to say most mutual funds are crap. However, yeah. Yeah. there are, and, and it's mostly because most of them are closet indexers. Like in Canada, 70% are closet indexers. Yeah, you basically. Know, you look at a mutual, they just charge more. You look at a Canadian equity fund and you look in the top 10, there are four banks. Yeah. It's a closet <laughs> index fund. So you're better off buying the index. But they're just assigning a manager to manage the fund to justify to charging be, more fees. Yes, and the fund managers will talk about I'm overweight by 5% on this sector and underweight by 5% 5 on this sector. Okay. This, is a, this is a closet indexer. <laughs> so, but there are some really great fund managers out there. there there's fund managers with 30-year track records ahead of Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. These guys are out there. So let's go out and find And they do their portfolios are completely different than the index. They're true, really great investors. That's and, fascinating. And so th these kind of guys are out there. So that's, that's the, the kind of investing that I'm doing, all looking for people like that. So you do that for yourself, and you will recommend that for uh, clients yes. when, when they're doing the investing part. Or you're recommending them to, to these portfolio managers. Right now I'm working with portfolio managers. Yeah, I'm working with two portfolio managers. One of them is doing an all-star approach yep. where they're finding you know mutual funds or ETFs with these great fund managers. Yeah all-star approach the other one is an index type approach okay and it's a guy who specifically is trying to beat the, he does a portfolio of whatever indexes and he specifically tries to beat the index and the unique thing about him is his fee is mainly based on how much he beats the index a performance fee interesting these are so, these are all so it depends on what your risk tolerance and and would yeah. you like it's are there people who come to you who qualify for you know i'm just going to send them to a robo advisor would you like is that part of your clientele well actually you know what i'm i'm set up with some robo advisors i haven't actually referred anybody nobody yet to eh? me, I, I always want to i always think there's better options yeah and investment well you know what you're there. you know what you're talking about that's the difference right it's like if yes. if somebody else tried to find the best uh portfolio <laughs> manager or fund managers right that would be tough right yeah so like the, ro the robo advisors i don't know if they really add much stock uh, like it, ETF selection. They're basically getting indexes. And indexes, of course, if you're buying ETFs, you don't get the return of the index. You're somewhat less based on their MER. Yeah, they have but very, also, very low MER, but the but there's a robo tracking, fee. Yeah. There's a tracking error. So ETFs, ETFs don't make the index. Like the global, for example, the global, global ETFs, most of them are a half percent or one percent below with a total tracking error. Okay. And then if you're with a robo-advisor, they're charging a half a percent. I was looking at, you know what? So what I charge for a full service... Yeah. 
all all the planning, tax returns, referral to great portfolio managers, yeah, advice in every area. I charge one percent. Robo advisors charging half a percent. That for for, very, for like yeah. almost the, that's less than five percent of what I do. Yeah, you know, it's, um, I know. I, so I was, everybody thinks of them as cheap. I think of them as really expensive. So, it, y- um, is your is your model uh, a percent of assets under management, or do you do flat fee as well for full service ongoing? That's like right. Initially, I, tr- I to write a financial plan, I charge a one time fee for a plan. Yeah. It's a one time thing. You get this document. Yes. Then, if they want to work full full service, it's a percentage of your assets under management. Yeah. And it's scaled down. It gets smaller. Because you're numbers. actively you're actively managing these. I mean, through your uh, portfolio yeah. managers. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm just all I'm doing is I'm studying portfolio managers and finding ones that are really good, and I'm watching them because we'll we'll go to a different portfolio manager if we want. Yes. But really, I'm spending my time doing all your planning. That's what I do. We we review your plan. Every year we review your plan. Are you on track? Does the plan still make sense? Do we want to change something? What are you supposed to be doing this year? How's your cash flow? Where's yeah, your mortgage? Yeah, yeah, that, what are your debts? That's what the is value. Your taxes. Yeah. I'm spending time doing all that part. And you know what? That's the part where people get messed up. Most people need way more help there. Than they do in picking the, the investments. A lot of people are fine with just the passive investing part, right? Like, I mean, I mean you might even agree as long as somebody's just putting so- something somewhere, it's better than nothing. But if they don't have a good plan to tell them what to put and what accounts to Passive put them into, is, is not bad. Yeah, it's yeah, right. It's like the levels. It's it's not bad. But I it's know not enough. Great. I, I would never be happy with it. You wouldn't because be. I think yeah. you could do better. But it's not bad, and it's certainly better than getting a run of the mill mutual fund out there. If somebody came to me and they wanted something more robust, I would send them to you absolutely. Right, and you know, I've, I've mentioned you to my parents because they are retired, and you know the. There are very specific uh, situations like, you know, if a 20-year-old just wants to start investing, they might be just fine going to a robo, right? But when they want, when they come to the point where they're like, you know, I'd like a plan. Like you said, when people wake up, what, in their 30s? Different for everybody. Different for everybody. Most, but I, most people, it's often late 30s, early 40s before they really wake up. But that's like that. I would say, you know what? Yeah, Ed does comprehensive plans and he, uh, you know, he's going to look out for you. Yeah. That's what I would say. You right? know what? I look at it as like a GPS. You, you, you want to get from here to Florida. Investing in equities is like driving a car. Bonds is like walking, right? But and so the first thing that people <laughs> want is I want to get in a car and drive fast. Well, my right. first thought is get a G, like wh- which direction get you go? Get a GPS. Well, get yeah. a GPS and get the <laughs> get the route figured out because that's the single most important thing at first. Get the route figured out. I like that. Okay, I think we're gonna have to stop on your story, even though I'm sure you have more on that list to talk about. <laughs> we're gonna move on for today. We're gonna stop the episode, but we're going to resume, and there's gonna be a part two with Ed Rempel, and it's going to be my first one. It's going to be a yeah. three-hour podcast without being all three hours just because yeah. I don't hopefully have time. The, hopefully the next, next part's only an hour. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you know, if anybody can stretch it, I can. But yes. So we, have, we can talk about blogging. and Exactly. We can talk about, because you've, you've had a very long career in financial planning. We wanted, I want to talk about where you, where you ended up, how you got to today, and also you are the expert in retirement strategies, so we have to talk about those things. All right? Yes. Okay, well, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for coming out. But yeah, we'll we'll resume this, let's just say, in a couple of months, and uh, it'll be be great. But today, I really enjoyed this today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Lots lots of fun. And that was episode 83 with Ed Rempel. As I said at the top of the show, there will be a part two, as Ed has so much more to share with us. We haven't booked or recorded it yet, but it will be in 2019, so stay tuned for that. 
If you're a regular listener, thanks so much for downloading the episodes every week. Another way you can support the podcast is by going to my Patreon site and becoming a patron. Just head over to patreon.com slash bowhumphreys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I am a co-host and the technical producer of a new podcast called Dear Ruby with my friend and personal finance expert, Rubina Ahmed Haq. Head over to DearRuby.com, that's D-E-A-R-R-U-B-I.com, to check out the first three episodes and let us know what you think by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. So this is the part of the show where I talk about some of the things I do other than this weekly podcast. Currently, a lot of my time is spent with my new baby boy, Henry, who was born on February 1st, 2019. One of the awesome bonuses of working for myself and setting my own hours is that I get to be around to take care of my son. So that's probably the biggest news in my life right now. But if you want to know more about me and read my story of addiction and recovery, head over to BoHumphreys.com. I have a personal finance webinar coming up in two weeks on Wednesday, June 5th, 2019 at 12 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Michelle Hung from Episode 70 of the podcast will be joining me for a webinar we're calling Lunchtime with Bo and Michelle. So if you ever wanted to ask me or Michelle a question about pretty much anything, this is your opportunity. To register for the webinar, click the link in the show notes or head over to bowhumphreys.com slash webinar. My personal finance blog is investwisely.ca. Uh, if you want to be notified when I publish a blog post, head over to investwisely.ca and sign up for my email list. And I am a personal finance coach, so if you're looking for someone to help you get organized and simplify your financial life, let me know. Sometimes all we need is some accountability to get things moving. You can email me at bow at bowhumphreys.com. That's it for this episode. I'll be back next week with Sandy Young, author of the upcoming book, The Money Master. <laughs>